Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. It allows women to get immediate feedback from professional stylists on the NG app. So things were going really well when we were all going out and wanting to dress up. But when you look at COVID, I'm like, yeah, that wasn't one of the risk factors in my business plan. I did not know that the whole world was going to shut down and, you know, thousands of people were going to die suddenly. Like, if that was not in my plan, I don't think it was in anybody's plan. Hello and welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. I'm Claire Hatton. And I'm Greta Thomas. And we're on a mission to help you achieve your goals. We're all about sharing the secrets of the world's most innovative and pioneering successful women. Hear their uplifting stories and practical advice right here. Yes, right here. And if you're enjoying this podcast, then why not sign up for our newsletter at hello at don'tstopusnow.co and keep listening for this week's latest episode. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Don't Stop Us Now. If you're in lockdown right now, we totally empathise with you as we're in the same boat. This is actually week six for us. Sure is. You know, that pandemic is certainly continuing to make its presence felt in a very strong way. No more so, arguably, than for our guest on the show today, entrepreneur Sophia Matveva. She's been obliged to stop working on her startup and up her time on her growing side hustle instead. Indeed. Now, before COVID hit, Sophia, a Russian by birth and based in England, had been making inroads with her fashion app called Enti. It was kind of like the Uber for fashion stylists and actually had been app of the day on Mashable. But global lockdowns put an end to that and actually to an end to the need for we consumers to seek stylist advice. That's for sure. So Sophia had been developing on the side a tech for non-techies course and talk, and she'd been writing articles as well, documenting what she'd learned as a non-tech founder and CEO running a tech startup. And she's found that whilst her fashion tech business stopped dead when COVID hit, this one was getting real traction. So in this episode, you'll learn how hearing her app developer's painful feedback was the best lesson she could have had. How it took Sophia to well into her 30s to feel confident enough to back herself. Her advice to women without tech experience who want to work in the tech industry. And the skills non-tech people need to be able to work with developers successfully. So without further ado, enjoy this episode with the articulate and enterprising Sophia Matveva. Sophia, welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. Thank you so much, Claire. I'm so happy to be here. I've heard your podcast and I am a fan. That is so brilliant to hear. And that's a particular accolade coming from you as a fellow podcaster. So uh, thank you. 
Sophia, it's, you know, it's really fantastic to have you here. I know you're talking to us from London at the moment, aren't you? Yes, I am. And typically the sky is grey today and it has been raining and it is July. But, you know, the British weather doesn't necessarily know that it's July. I think it thinks it's <laughs> That's right. November. You've already had your two weeks of summer, I think. Yeah, exactly. We've had the annual dose. We're back to normal. <laughs> Oh, well, fingers crossed it will get better. I know we're going to have a really interesting conversation. The first question we always like to ask our guests is if you were at a dinner party and somebody asked you, what do you do? How would you describe what you do today? I would say to them that I teach smart, non-technical professionals about technology so they can succeed and have amazing careers. Wow. I love the fact that you've got that down pat. We'll explore that in a lot more detail as we go into our conversation. But before we do, we'd love to just learn a little bit more about you as a person and, you know, your career journey that's really brought you to where you are today. So can we just wind all the way back and go back to your childhood, in fact? How would you describe your childhood? So I was brought up in the Soviet Union in Moscow, and I am the offspring of many strong women. When I was a child, I expected that I will lead armies and that there will also be a spaceship involved. So it was really? a sort of warrior princess on a spaceship. So I did want good dresses, but I also wanted an army and spaceships. Well, who doesn't? Well, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> So that was me as a child. And so I was always getting into trouble because as far as I was concerned, I was a very important leader of armies. And sometimes neighbor boys were subjugated to basically be the soldiers in my army and saying there was not an answer. And so I was a very confident child. But it's when you get to your teenage years, when you become a teenage girl, I think that's when confidence starts getting knocked out of you. <laughs> Yeah. And then, you know, you end up using your adult life to build that back up. Well, that was certainly the case with me. Yeah, no, I think that's that's the case for many young girls. So how did your family influence this sort of way that you saw yourself? So first of all, there is obviously the family, but I think also it's important to mention the Soviet system as a whole. In the Soviet Union, women have been getting educations and working in full-time professional jobs pretty much since the revolution. So we can say since about the 1920s. So this whole thing that happened in Western economies of men going to work and women being housewives, it didn't happen in the Soviet Union. It just wasn't a thing. I didn't understand this whole concept of, oh, I'm the first woman to work in my family because that wasn't the case. My great-grandmother worked as a nurse. My grandmother, she has a very senior job. She actually set up a business as a patent attorney. My mother works at the UN. Everybody has you know, at least two degrees. And so growing up in this kind of environment, it was more a case of, okay, well, what am I going to do? what am I going to devote my career to, rather than am I going to have a career? It was more a case of, well, is it going to be science? Is it going to be becoming an, an academic? Is it going to be doing something else? So I think that definitely gave me a step up. That's really interesting. So what did you imagine that you were going to do apart from 
be a warrior and go to space? Well, so before I discovered that actually I really didn't like physics, space was going to be, you know, the plan. Well, also there was, you know, the, the Soviet space program and that looked quite glamorous. Then I moved to the UK when I was about 10. You know, that was a whole different world. And obviously that being a foreign child who doesn't necessarily speak the language and doesn't understand the culture, that was a really huge knock. And in my teenage years, I was quite confused, but I think also there is the immigration aspect, but then there's also just the hell of being a teenage girl. So the next thing I thought I wanted to do when I came of age a little bit, I was thinking about being a journalist, specifically being a war journalist. And I was really also interested in propaganda. So it's actually something that I studied at university. So I studied politics at Bristol University and at the University of Chicago. I became really interested in understanding what the media reports and how the media reports facts, how that then actually influences what people do and how that influences policy. So what's more important? Is reality more important or is perception more important? How topical for today. Exactly. And from what I've seen is that I don't think you can say one is more important than the other, but it is a constant dance of the two. And ignoring one and, you know, just pummeling people with facts if their emotions are in a different place, that doesn't work. Yeah, fascinating. And you talked about your degree and you had a a varied start, but it seems like that communications journalism thread took hold pretty soon after you left uni because you quite early in your career got into PR, didn't you? What was the decision process to do PR versus journalism? So... I was super interested in this, uh, let's call it manipulation of perception. And I was really curious about, well, okay, so there are people who know how to do it well. And there are some bad people in history. I mean, I'm thinking Joseph Goebbels here, who used those superpowers for evil. And then there are other people who use it for good. But essentially, it is a power. It's a power like any power. You know, it's a superpower that you can use for good or for evil. And I wanted to learn how to get that superpower. So I literally Googled the top 10 financial PR agencies in London. And I just wrote to them saying, hi, I am here. Do you have any job openings? And then I just called them up on a follow-up call and I had a few interviews. I got into the top one, which was, I think, very lucky, but also telling of the times, because at the time there were a lot of initial public offerings. So that's basically listings on the stock exchange by Russian owned companies. So basically Russian oligarchs selling the shares of their companies on the London Stock Exchange. And my first language is Russian and my English Mm -hmm. is pretty, pretty good. So basically, it seemed to the company at the time, I think, you know, they were like, oh, she's junior, which means she's cheap. But to me, I was like, wow, somebody's going to pay me money to wear a suit and go to work and do things. I think it was a win-win situation on both sides. And it was really there that I learned how this art of perception, art of influence, I learned how that works. And I learned really from the best people. Now, fast forward a number of years, and you then decided about 2016, I think, to go and do an MBA. What prompted you to do that? I get asked that question quite a lot. And I would say, honestly, that for me, it was a confidence thing. I think that an MBA is useful, but ultimately, it is not the same as medical school. 
So when you go to medical school, you literally learn facts that you probably can't get outside. And you also learn to do the kinds of things you, you literally you know, practice on cadavers. With an MBA, this is not what you get. You could actually get a lot of the skills that you get in an MBA. You get a lot of the knowledge just doing a job or maybe reading the newspapers. But what I think an MBA does give you, especially when you are maybe in your 20s, you're not entirely feeling confident, you're not entirely sure of yourself, is if you go to one of the top business schools, you kind of get a stamp of approval. And for me, that official stamp of approval was a huge confidence boost. I can totally relate to that because I actually um, started my life as a professional ballet dancer. So I don't have an undergraduate degree. And then interestingly, I went into PR after journalism. And so kind of we have some similar footsteps there. But I too did an MBA for, if you like, the validation because Mm -hmm. I didn't have a degree and I thought I am going to need to show I can cut it and, you know, that I have a benchmark that shows where I can be, if you like. So, yeah, I totally understand that. But going back to that confidence issue that you talked about, if you had to summarize the sort of the main way that that confidence issue showed itself in your 20s, what would that have been? I would say always undervaluing myself just constantly. And, you know, now I am 38 and I feel like just now I have learned to speak up for my own value but I'm an entrepreneur now so I think I've had to kind of learn the hard way but I do see that a lot of women especially in their 20s we tend to take the first job offer that we get given we don't negotiate and there's actually data showing that men do that and that it pays off over the longer term absolutely for example if you know there is a team and there is some extra admin work to be done it's often the woman that automatically assumes that she's going to be doing it and then doesn't stand up and say, well, actually, I'm more qualified than the junior guy on my team. So why isn't he doing the admin bit and I'm doing it? So this kind of thing, these little things, when you're not standing up for yourself and undervaluing yourself, these little things, they add up. And eventually you end up doing lots of unpaid work and not negotiating for a salary basically working for longer, working more and getting paid less. Yeah, for sure. Now, if we come back to the MBA, whilst you were studying your MBA, you co-founded, I believe, your first business called Enti. What led to that happening? So when I was doing my MBA, I thought that this was an, an ideal time to explore founding a company. Because when you're doing an MBA, you kind of have the cover of a good brand. You kind of have the cover that you're doing something. And under that cover, you can run all sorts of experiments. I wanted to experiment with a bunch of ideas for technology-enabled businesses. Because I saw that this is where the opportunity lay. And I wanted to see, basically, if I could come up with something that would have legs. You know, it was kind of a personal challenge for me. And so I tested lots and lots of ideas. And eventually, I came across one that looked like it had legs. I attracted a team. By the time I graduated, I already had a business plan. I had an idea. And also, I had a few angel investors who were willing to fund it, which was basically the best possible outcome that I could have had after doing my MBA. Yeah, that's fantastic. Well done. And what was the business? So the business is the fashion tech company. It allows women to get immediate feedback from professional stylists on the NT app. So you can take a photo and ask a question like, should I wear this on a date? Or 
more importantly, is this bag really worth $600, which we often get? And you will get a professional stylist who is not incentivized by any shops or not incentivized by sales to essentially give you advice, give you feedback and help you look and feel your best. Amazing. And what's the business model? People literally pay for this. People pay to access stylist advice, but it's a much, much lower rate than you would if you had a personal stylist walking around in shops with you. So this is what technology has enabled us to do. Essentially, it widened the market in a way that when we're working with professional stylists, when you're a professional stylist, you're a freelancer. So actually, you do charge some very expensive hours. So maybe you would have like a couple of hours for $300 booked in your diary. But then the rest of the time, you're pretty free. So if you then have the opportunity, A, to make some extra money, to maybe learn some digital skills and also start meeting new clients in a digital way, then actually that can feed your pipeline to the freelance clients, but also it can help you monetize that fallow time. Great. It sounds like sort of like the Uber of the fashion stylist world. You're creating a marketplace. So things were going really well when we were all going out and wanting to dress up. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. So it's interesting because I've been thinking about kind of what do I wish I had known and risk factors, et cetera, et cetera. But when you look at COVID, I'm like, yeah, that wasn't one of the risk factors in my business plan. I did not know that the whole world was going to shut down and, you know, thousands of people were going to die suddenly. Like that was not in my plan. I don't think it was in anybody's plan. No. So I think for any entrepreneur whose company has been hit by what's happening or anybody whose career has been hit by what's happening, I do want to say, you know, I'm there, I'm with you, I understand. And just do your best not to blame yourself. How have you managed this? Because it sounds as if it's really had a very big impact on your business. How have you managed it from a business and a, and a mindset perspective? Well, so I ended up in a very weird situation where by accident, I ended up running two companies. So NT, the first the fashion tech startup, which has a great product, has very good technology, but the market environment was completely not there. Because think about it. When do you think about what to wear? When do you stress about what to wear? It's job interviews, it's dates, it's parties, it's graduations, it's weddings. So the use case was basically completely wiped out. But on the other side, there was Tech Fun and Techies, which I literally just set up as an e-learning business after London Business School had asked me to teach my course and I already had all of the information. So I just put it online. Pretty easy business. And as you might know, e-learning, online learning, basically shot up during the pandemic. So I ended up in this weird yo-yo situation where one business was taking a nosedive and the other one was doing really well and growing. And so I had to, literally during the same days, sometimes kind of enter hell and then enter a really positive situation. So it's been an interesting time. Wow, yeah. It sounds as if it's, uh, in some ways, it was lucky you've got this second business, but in other ways, I can imagine how hard it must be to juggle the two of them and be able to sort of split your thinking and how you turn up for both of them. Well, to be honest, I actually think I got very lucky and it reminds me of what an entrepreneur friend of mine said. So she has exited her company. And I remember we had a drink just after her very successful exit. 
And I said to her, what advice would you give me? And she said, have a hobby. And the reason why she said that, she said that, you know, your business is going to do all sorts of crazy things. And if that's the only thing where you can learn, where you can succeed, you end up placing all your self-confidence there. But if, for example, you also are, I don't know, learning pottery, or I don't know, playing tennis or whatever, but basically something where you're learning and you can get better, you can at least have a day, which is, you know, completely insane on your business, but then maybe have a small success, you know, maybe you played tennis really well, or maybe you learned a new thing in your pottery class. So then when you go to bed, you can have some sort of equilibrium in your brain. And that's what having these two businesses really helped me do, because one did start more as a side hustle hobby but that side hustle hobby during the pandemic was actually the thing that grew and the first business literally it's now something that I'm exiting I'm selling the technology onto people with deeper pockets because the technology is fantastic. Totally understandable and speaking of the technology and I imagine this speaks to the heart of your other business tech for non-techies but speaking of the technology for Enti the fashion app how did you find it As a non-technically trained person, having to, in those early days, build the app and the, I think you've got some AI algorithms in there as well. How was that journey? It was horrendous. The reason why it was horrendous is that when you are a non-technical founder or when you're just a non-technical professional and you're getting into the world of tech, you don't know what you don't know. So, If you are sitting in front of Google with the best intentions, if you don't know what to put into the Google search bar, Google is not going to help you. And I think this is the problem with people like me who are non-technical founders or non-technical professionals. You can be sitting in a room full of developers and they might even be working for you, which is what happened with me. But if you don't know how to set the right tasks, if you don't know how to evaluate progress, if you don't know how to tell whether what people are doing is right for your business or not, it's going to be very, very difficult. And I found that there are lots of courses to teach you how to become a developer, but there wasn't anything to help smart, non-technical people co-create with technical people. And is that the gap that tech for non-techies is filling, would you say? Yes, exactly. So the reason why Tech Phonotechies was born accidentally is because I literally started writing about what I was learning as a non-technical founder in my column in Forbes. And I was writing other columns too, but it's the non-technical founder aspect that were the most read articles. And people started asking to give me talks. Those talks became a course. And London Business School, one of the top business schools in the world, they asked me to teach my course to their students. And that's when I realized, actually, there are lots of people like me, people who are smart, people who have a professional background, people who want to understand technology enough to get things done. But we don't actually want to completely transition and to become developers or data scientists. And from what I've seen, there isn't anything for those people who are pretty happy with the skills that they have, and they don't want to completely change their careers. What are the key kinds of roles and contribution that non-tech people, non-tech trained people can make in different startups and different companies, do you think? Well, the key thing here to remember is that 
a product, whatever the product is, whether it's an app or a podcast or a glass, is that a product is always a solution to a problem. So, for example, I have a glass here in front of me, and the reason why I have it is because it contains water, so I take a sip of water. I'm not thinking I want to use a glass. I'm thinking I'm a bit thirsty. So whatever you are creating, whatever your company is creating, you have to think about it from the user perspective. So forget technology, forget algorithms, understand who the user is. And the more you can understand who the user is, the more relevant the technology is going to be. So for anybody who is a non-technical professional, I would think about, okay, what product is your company creating? Who are the users? What is the user's problem? Really get into that because once you understand the user's problem, then you can very successfully co-create with developers and with designers. I couldn't agree more. When you were starting off and you were building this app and you had your techies and you said you were struggling to sort of know how to keep them accountable, how did you learn to do that? So I would say it came through painful experience. First of all, one of the mistakes that I made was setting business goals to the product team, and you shouldn't do that. So for example, let's take Facebook as an example, because most of us know how that works. So a product goal in the Facebook app could be, for example, how many minutes people spend in the Facebook app per day. Now, Facebook then translates those minutes into profits by serving as advertising. But if you go and you say to developers, hey, make me lots of money, the developers are going to be very confused. And that's essentially what I was doing. I was saying, okay, well, we need to hit this revenue goal to a bunch of developers. And they didn't know what to do. And so our entire product process, it was kind of goalless. And as you know, if you don't set specific goals, even if you have the smartest people in the world, everybody's kind of working on their own thing and nobody's moving anywhere. What ended up happening is that I literally decided to have a 180 review. So I literally said to my team, I was like, okay, now I tell you what I think of your work. Tell me what you think of my work. And oh my God, they told me. (laughs) That's how literally I had a product team rebellion on my hands. They were saying, we have no goals. We don't know what we're doing. We're working all of the time and we don't know why. How did you deal with that? Because, you know, that's a fear of many people who, <laughs> that's why they don't ask for feedback. How did you actually then take that feedback and do something useful with it? I mean, first I put my face in the chocolate cake. Let's be honest about this. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I mean, I felt bad for a while. But the thing is, when you are a founder, you have investors' money and you have a team and you just have to get over it. Like it was painful and it was bad, but I didn't really have an option to fall back on. Like the team now told me what the problem was. It was very public. And so the only other option I could have done was basically say, oh yeah, okay, fine. I'm running away. I wasn't going to do that. So essentially I had to say, okay, fine. What would you have me do instead? And it was an admission of, yeah, you're right. You're right that I don't know what I'm doing, but can you help me? (laughs) And what was very useful is that they actually could help me, that we all did sit down. And then it was literally the product team that explained to me, like, look, when you say to us things about money or fundraising or user growth, we don't know what to do with that. That's not our job. 
And so that's when I realized, okay, so for example, in order for us to raise the next amount of funding, we need to have these particular product metrics because this is what investors are asking for. So it's then my job as the founder to look at what investors are saying and then translate that business goal into a product goal. And literally, if I hadn't asked for that feedback and then hadn't received that horrendous feedback from my team and then kind of used that as an opportunity to really learn, I don't think, well, I don't think tech fun and techies would have existed and I, I don't think we would have actually reached success in our product. But that's a key mistake that I see non-techies make is basically think that a product goal is the same as basically making money and it isn't. Yeah. Good on you for taking that feedback and and also being vulnerable enough to say that you don't know and then asking for help. Given how blokey a reputation the tech world can have, particularly Silicon Valley, what advice have you for either potential female founders or women wanting to work in tech companies if they've not got that tech background in order to be able to thrive? So first of all, I would say proudly acknowledge what you are and what you're not. When you're a non-technical founder or non-technical professional in a tech company, you will always hear the voices of you don't know enough, which you basically then translate to, I am not enough. Now, to this, I say, that's rubbish. There are plenty of very successful non-technical founders. So if you get that message to you, bring up Jack Ma, the founder of Alibaba, who started his career as an English teacher. Bring up Katrina Lake, who is the founder of Stitch Fix, one of the wealthiest self-made women in the US. That is a fashion tech AI company founded by a non-technical founder. There are plenty of examples of successful non-technical founders who have not tried to become another Mark Zuckerberg. So first of all, embrace who you are. Don't worry about who you're not. The next thing I'd say is that it is about co-creating. Everything in our careers is about learning how to work in a team and how to co-create. So what you need to do is you need to learn how designers and developers think. You need to learn how to set goals and how to reach them together. You don't actually need to be a designer or a developer yourself. In a way that in order for you to hire a lawyer, you don't need to go to law school. I mean, that's why we hire lawyers, right? Because we haven't gone to law school. So why on earth would you then try to learn to code so you can hire a developer? The logic just doesn't translate. So it's about learning how to co-create. In order for you to learn how to co-create, you need to A, focus on the user, and B, understand how to speak tech. So it's about learning the core concepts and learning some key jargon so you can basically have a common language to speak and to co-create. You don't need to learn to code, but you do need to learn some core concepts rather than skills. That's great advice. You know, what's next for you and your businesses? So right now, as I mentioned, I am in the process of selling the technology of NT to a different player. So I can focus on tech for non-techies because that business has been giving me so much joy and it's been growing and it has been really helping people build businesses and build their careers. So right now, what I'm devoted to is bridging the digital skills gap. So we don't have this weird feudal system of people who understand technology and then everybody else. 
because I'm part of that everybody else. And I'm proof that actually you don't need to completely become a different person in order to succeed in the tech world. And I want more people like you, more people like me to essentially widen opportunities in their world and widen opportunities in their careers and really use tech to their own advantage as opposed to have tech use them. Yeah, I think it's a really important skill set for people to have, particularly as we go into into the future where technology is going to play much, much larger role in pretty much everything we do. Sophia, what advice would you give your, let's say, 25-year-old self? I would say don't take any crap from sleazy men to my 25-year-old <laughs> self. Because honestly, Ooh, I was, there's stories there. <laughs> I was working in the city of London in the financial services industry. There were just so many sleazy old men, you know, clients or senior people. And when you're 25, you just don't know how to deal with that. Or I didn't know how to deal with that. And so I was trying to be polite and laugh things off. When actually, that's not what I should have been doing. Yeah. yeah, yeah, awful. Good advice, I'd say. It's been such an interesting conversation, Sophia. Thank you so much. If listeners wanted to find out more about you or your businesses, where could they go? So if you listen to podcasts, which clearly do, then just listen to the Techman Techies podcast and you can learn some cool concepts about technology. Or you can follow me on Twitter, on Sophia Matveva, or on Instagram at techmanantechies. Brilliant. And we'll put that on our show notes page as well. So it just leaves it for me to say thank you so much for your time, Sophia. It's been fascinating talking to you and learning about your really interesting and very worthwhile endeavors. So thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. It has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much, Sophia. I really love Sophia's story of getting that terrible feedback from her own developers when she asked them, didn't you? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, full kudos to her, firstly, for being open to share that story so vulnerably with us. And then secondly, that she had the courage to ask her developers for feedback in the first place, because it probably was apparent to her at the time that things weren't going so smoothly. And then, of course, finally, that she took that feedback from the developers on board and had the courage to ask them what she should be doing instead. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that must have been a very difficult time, but what a great outcome Yeah. to learn the power of having product goals for developers versus business goals. Yeah, a really good learning. You know, I was also really impressed that with all that being a founder takes, Sophia chose to start writing more articles and then create a course as her side hustle. Yeah, that's quite a side hustle when you're already a founder. But you know, given the pandemic's effect on her first business, it just goes to show the power of getting things done and out there and then seeing what has traction. Yeah, that's for sure. Well, that's this episode done and dusted. Stay tuned for another mini episode next week. And then the week after that, you can look forward to hearing from an inspiring young woman that was Richard Branson's nominee for Wired Magazine's list of future game changers to watch a few years back. Ah, now that would be the hugely talented Holly Ransom. And what a great conversation we had. Now, in the meantime, if you're in lockdown, be kind to yourself, take care and spot the little things that matter. Ciao for now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.